Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. For this episode, I was lucky to be joined by three guests who are in the order that you'll first hear them speak. Anna Monfils, who's a professor at Central Michigan University and director of the Central Michigan University Herbarium, and also a member of the Bioscience Editorial Board. Erica Krimmel, who's an information scientist with the IDIG Bio Project at Florida State University. And Travis Marcico, who's a professor of botany at Arkansas State University and curator of the Arkansas State University herbarium. They join me to discuss the Connecting Students to Citizen Science and Curated Collections module, which they designed and implemented. The module offers students a way to connect foundational skills in biology with the data science acumen that we hear so much about in any conversation about biological workforce needs. But I'll let them explain exactly how it works. So let's go straight to the interview. Thank you all very much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thank great you. Great to be here, James. Yeah, thanks for having us. Okay, just to get us started, I thought it might be interesting to talk a little bit about the tension between foundational skills in biology and then the rise of data skills and the need for data acumen. So kind of what is that problem and, you know, um, how is it affecting students these days? <laughs> well, I can, I'll take a stab at that one. Um, so what's changing is what we're needing in the upcoming workforce. With so much data, it's really changed the face of science. And so this means we're adding new skills and new skill sets um, to what students need to learn as their undergrads preparing for their next step in the journey. And one of the tensions that we had is we still know very fundamentally there's some core organismal biology, a student, particularly a student interested in pursuing ecology or evolution or conservation would need. And how could we leverage what we do in natural history collections which at its very foundation is about collecting and archiving specimens to also teach the next step of that, which is the handling of the data and the digitization of the resources and the aggregation of data sources. And so it is a problem because there's a lot to put into the curriculum. I think there's another element to this challenge, which is that um, information literacy, data acumen, kind of those skills are emerging rapidly. And so we have faculty that are learning these skills for themselves at the same time that we're expecting them to transfer that knowledge and um, skills to their students. And so it's, it's really like a moving target that we're trying to all get on the, on the train with. But I think it's important to realize that we, those of us that were running natural history collections, were moving into this idea that we needed to digitize our collections. And with the help of IDIGBIO, there was a lot of training going on for the people who were curating the regional collections. And so that's how we all actually met, is we were helping run some conferences of that sort, where we were trying to disseminate the skill sets that would be needed to digitize these regional collections. And we kind of had this epiphany moment where we realized, wait a minute, we're learning this, but we're creating these students that one, are going to create more legacy data for us to then retrofit into digitization, which we didn't, we didn't want to see that continue. But also, how are we graduating students that aren't already familiar with the importance of this set of skills? And so we tried to leverage while we're learning it, which Erica was, was absolutely correct in that we need to gain these skills. And could we at the same time put those skills in our classrooms so that we're not creating another generation of people that need to, to get that training? Yeah, for sure. Two things here. One, I'm, I'm interested in kind of recreating that walk down memory lane of how we got our project started because it is so interesting. And the fact that we 
pulled it off <laughs> is impressive and you know yay <laughs> us but also from the curator standpoint of somebody who I had been um, educated and formally trained in specimen curation as well as being a scientist so like I came into my job knowing how to take care of a an herbarium specifically in a natural history collection and I know that some of our colleagues who worked on this project with us, like Ashley Morris, that that was new to her. I mean, she it was like, you know, here you go, here's your herbarium, and she didn't have the skills. So like Anna was saying, we were getting together, kind of working together and some of us training others. And we sat down and said, but look, if we are teaching students the importance of the specimens in the collection, but we're not doing anything with digitization, then what kind of backlog does that make for us to deal with? So like Anna already mentioned, that was for me sort of more than the education and look forward was like how much extra work am I creating for myself by continuing business as usual, the standard natural history collection. So I was trying to solve that problem while I think maybe more in line with her profession and altruistically Anna was looking to better student learning gains and I was just like I just don't want a cabinet full of specimens that are poorly labeled um, and it would be awesome if I was a better instructor. <laughs> I think you put that well Travis there's definitely an, uh, a need for efficiency part of our our decision making when we were thinking about this project at its inception. Well I also think it was it was um, it was interesting some of the conversations we had because even though all of us or, or I think most of us on this were trained in plant systematics and in specimen collecting in the sense when you say training of we all had done it and it was critical to our research but once we started talking about the specifics of it there were some sometimes even heated discussions about what was best practice for collecting a specimen because we realized we may never have actually been taught like the very basics of how you collect a plant and what you look for. And do you, I remember one of the discussions, do you take a picture or not? And there were all these different steps to this that we realized we'd kind of come to a little ad hoc. And many of us had looked into things and we had classes that we taught, but I think that part got better because we started to share our resources and have those discussions. And, and you don't almost don't want to admit sometimes that you're not the total authority and that maybe I'm still learning how to do this. And that broke down a lot of things across our group is that we all acknowledged we had a lot to learn from each other. And if we could capture that, we could share that even broader. Okay, great. So taking this back, you know, to the very beginning of the project, um, you have this need, which is that, you know, you've got to bring in these data skills into the classroom because you know that your students are going to need them. Um, and at the same time, you know, you need to, uh, you know, uh, practice doing them yourself, et cetera. And you've got to fit this into the curriculum without absolutely eliminating all of the things that you know people have traditionally learned um, about specimen collection, et cetera. So uh, you know, you've, you've got the idea that you want to bring these together. Um, where do you start? Where does the, where do the, how do the conversation start and, and you know, what are the next steps? Well, we had, so we really formalized this in July of 2014. And I was teaching a class, I might have been the first to implement it, or Brad and I at the same time, um, one of our other colleagues, Brad Rufel, on this. I was teaching a class starting in August of 2014. So 
we were like, yeah, great idea. Let's start now. And so that, that month was a lot of emails and maybe even some conference calls to get organized um, our institutional review board application because we were going to be surveying students. We were um, playing back and forth, sending drafts of a uh, certain curriculum revamp that was going to be implemented in a course during the semester. So we were, we were planning to teach our traditional um, kind of upper level botanical courses that have a systematics bent to them. Um, I teach a lot about plant family identification and um, morphological uh, features that we use to identify plants to the species and um, organized in a plant family level, that kind of thing. And we wanted to make sure it wasn't just business as usual, but that we were working hard together to come up with something that would be transferable across these different classes at the different institutions where we were implementing this, knowing we didn't teach all the same way or even the same subject matter exactly. So there was a lot of um, teamwork right at the beginning for how we were going to implement it because we, we had a plan to collect data from the students, to assess learning gains, and we wanted to make sure this was repeatable even though we didn't teach one of these classes every semester. And so our hope was to get it right the first time so that the next semester and the next semester and the next semester would result in comparable data that we were collecting. So I just remember doing a lot of hard work there in 2014. But I, but I did want to also say about the dynamic, like our group is, um, we all had identified ourselves as being part of the small collections. We were part of this group that we formalized called NANCH, the North American Network of Small Herbaria. And that was one place where we started these conversations because we thought that identifying as having um, or being affiliated with small collections, you know, we you, there's the complaining side, like under-resourced, but there's also the empowering side, which we interact with students uh, on a lot more regular basis than maybe somebody at, at a very large institution where the mission is different than our kind of um, universities and our collections and that the students have more regular access to the collections and so i think that was a huge part of it so we had kind of common goals common needs that we met a couple times at some conferences you know that you always hear how important the networking aspects are at conferences and for us that's really that was really true you know finding common ground and um important activities where we connect and get to know each other so i think we built a level of trust among our group that was like, yeah, we're all hard workers. We're all committed to this and we're gonna make this project work. I wanna uh, just underscore Travis's comment about being um, people working in smaller collections and interacting with, with the students on a, a more personal level, because I think that kind of gets at the like, well, how do you start, where do you start identifying the data skills needs? If you're working with these students and you interact with them in a regular and ongoing way, it becomes really clear like, oh, they do not know XYZ concept or, you know, I kind of expected they might. Maybe they teach this in high school now, but no, they don't. Um, so I think that, that the position that 
uh, the people in our group were in, being at smaller collections really helped us kind of identify those needs and then create this module that could serve to fit those needs. I also think there's something about natural history collections. And I know that that all of us in our group felt this about the unique role that they can have in supporting science and the unique role they can have in experiencing the entire data pathway. So other types of data you can see and you know maybe you see a base pair sequence that isn't as personal of a thing as a place-based I collected this plant, I can see it on a map, and I can see that dot show up, and I remember where I was, I remember the experience of that wetland or the experience of that, of collecting that plant, and bring that visceral place-based relevant experience to the point where now it's part of a data set. And all those steps in between, including because they're, you know, back to that idea, the tension between the organismal versus the data science, or the molecular is they get to be part of each step of it. And then as that data starts to get used, so it's not just bringing your data from the specimen in the field to curating a specimen and putting it into a collection to seeing it as part of a citizen science data or community science database, also seeing it start to go live for your collection. Really over the years, our students also started to look and see, wait a minute, I see the specimens from your class two years ago that went to the same site. But now even thinking forward and asking them to start to think about how this data could get used and questions that they could ask, which has become, to me, this gets more sophisticated because we as professors got more sophisticated, new things were happening in the world that we could bring into the classroom. But the fact is we could always piggyback it on that physical experience of collecting the specimen and the collections themselves as these sort of epicenters of biodiversity science and how we all connect together. And I think that was one of the, the things that sort of built, we kind of knew this fundamentally, but it became a much more conscious idea of what we were doing as educators and researchers as this progressed. Okay, so I guess now is a great time or as good a time as any to talk about what's actually in the module. Um, what did your students do? Well, they... Um made their own specimen collections following a really high quality, the way I describe it is like an online syllabus that we shared across. Um, the architect was Erica and she made the website, which is a way to access it's um, www.collectionseducation.org. And that is where I tell my students to go and check out all of the um, ways to interface with how they're going to make an, a specimen collection, what kind of data they need to collect, and how they use the iNaturalist platform, which is a community science-based platform that many, many folks are familiar with at this point. And interestingly, in 2014, I mean, it wasn't brand new, but it was pretty new with respect to using it in these ways when we first started this. And now, one of, to one of Erica's points earlier about not um, kind of like expecting them to know things and students not coming in knowing some stuff and not others, everybody's used iNaturalist by the time I teach them now. So using it as a way to go on a walk and snap some photos and put a location of seeing a plant or an animal is not foreign to them at all. 
using that platform. Now, using it in a way that we did, which was you're going to make your specimen collection, you're going to sign on particularly to our project within the iNaturalist platform, and you're going to fill in some extra data fields that are then going to be used in a mail merge to transfer to the specimen label. That was something that I think at the time we were bringing new to the table here. And for me, it was night and day with respect to how um, standardized and um, more detailed specimen labels became from students. Where before it was free form, you know, kind of follow these rules, type up your specimen label on your own Microsoft Word, you know, using these fields. But when they're accurately geolocated from the original collection and they have a lot more detailed instruction, I guess, and we talk about it more, um, <laughs> uh, more not regularly. I want to say like when we, we talked about it uh, with more precision about what has to happen, the, the labels just became really great. So I feel like students were then getting more out of the exercise. And Anna mentioned earlier too, do, taking photos or don't taking photos. Well, the only way a non-naturalist observation is really meaningful is with a field photo. But now you have linked, even on our specimen labels, where you can see the physical specimen flattened and dried and mounted in front of you, you have um, a URL that links back to the field photos. So you can get really good information on uh, live flower color, for example. Uh, and we just really upped our game here at Arkansas State this year by adding the QR code to the label. So now we have QR codes that link back to our iNaturalist observations. <laughs> Fancy. Yes. Thank you. So one of the cool things about it is it does as require the student, you can make fixed fields in iNaturalist. And so Erica was really our liaison to iNaturalist and kind of was talking to us about capacity and it was kind of like, wow, you can really do this. So students had to fill in all the parts of the form. And that one is a win because right there it gets all filled in. But the second part is, is many of my students, I know this is the same case with Travis, still use iNaturalist to make their specimens and they're still using all those fields. And so one of the most fun things was to see, I was in a meeting with my graduate student who took the class and um, someone we were meeting for the first time and he was totally fangirling my student because his labels had become a bit of a, uh, they were so well detailed that his iNaturalist entries were like this gold standard of all this detail about exactly what he saw in the field. And, you know, normally people put the name of the species maybe and it geolocates it for you. Whereas now there was this super extensive record and apparently it had become a little bit of a thing that when you got one of his specimens that showed up in your like iNaturalist search, it was like, oh, that's going to have a whole, all these details. And I think that's what Travis was just saying too, is that by requiring this, our students then started to just as standard populate a lot more information on that label and start thinking about the uses of that. And that's where, you know, we kind of make this link in the paper back to this idea of the extended specimen, which is that you've got the specimen, you collected that in the field, but there's all this other data that is also collected at that time bring that back, it might be part of a whole collection and that you can link all that together. And so it gives the students a chance to see the start of that process and understand the potential uses of the data downstream. So really our module 
is standardizing a process, plant collecting. And then that process or our module was embedded into different topical courses. So it might be in a dendrology course or in a wetland plants course. The actual like course content in terms of what um, Anna, Travis, Ashley, and Brad were teaching might have been a little different, but this process of how to collect a plant was the like the nexus of where we were getting students to think about um, the data acumen side of things. Okay, great. And so it sounds like um, you know they've they've they're gaining these foundational skills there. Um, then you know learning how to input these data and add them to you know larger sets. I think what we should do though for a moment though is take just a second and talk a little bit about the extended specimen. Um, in a little bit more detail. I think listeners of this show who listen regularly will will be familiar with the concept, um, but you know there can never be too much extended specimen. So uh, <laughs> if one of you could give us sort of the, the, the general idea behind that concept and you know kind of how it relates to collections because it, it never hurts to recover that ground a little bit. So extended specimens? Okay, so um, the idea of the extended specimen first was coined by Mike Webster. And it is this idea that it refers to a specimen, the physical specimen that you collect in the field, the associated specimen data, which can include the location, it can include the associated species. It's going to include who collected it, might include who identified it, if that's someone different, can give physical characteristics of the actual specimen, it can talk about the population as well. But it's also the network of other associated data. So that could mean if you were to later go and sequence that specimen, or if you had other associated soil or water quality data, that you can link all of that together in your study. And so together, when you look at all the data linked to an individual specimen, and then you link all the specimens together, you get this network of information and a sort of knowledge cloud that then can be used downstream by lots of different researchers who might have different questions, but can probe the data for the parts of the data that they need. And so that's sort of the general extended specimen concept. Um, I'm going to let Erica and Travis say if they want to add anything to that. Well, I've been working with colleagues, too, who um, are parasitologists and um, otherwise study symbionts. And I know that they're really interested in the extended specimen from, like, for an example, of birds and uh, their feather mites or feather lice having the physical specimen of the bird or the bird feather along with the louse or mite along with the genomes of them both uh, can be used in coevolution studies and i actually teach an entire course on um, research design associated with natural history collections and i think working on this project for the last few years has really helped me think of that because you know we when we think of the utility of natural history specimens um, is foundational in taxonomy. We, the science that we're in requires a type specimen to be deposited, uh, an original specimen that's supposed to represent the entirety of a species description and, a, and name, right? So having that type specimen is why we have collections, but then why have redundant collections with um, collected over time and space, uh, multiple uh, specimens of the same species and you know that's useful in taxonomic revision or ecological studies like changes in uh, range or or distribution um, tracking species invasions over time how flowering phenology changes due to climate and we cover all these topics 
And having the specimen is great, but without the associated data and maybe the associated um, organisms that might be occurring with that, that species like Anna mentioned or also feeding on it um, is so much more powerful. And it's a way for us to look back in time and make comparisons with the present as well. So I think it, for me, it's really the ability to study and then also to educate students on the power of this um, chronology that we have of specimens over time and space. And that's, we need to not lose that. Um, I think they're more important now than ever because of emerging technologies that we can use and also the critical nature of the biodiversity crisis that we're dealing with um, and how we can use our specimens and their associated data to, to make informed conservation plans. So I think this is, you know, really interesting and kind of speaks really well to, you know, that that idea that Anna was talking about earlier of, you know, starting with something so simple and so physical in the real world of collecting a sample and then, you know, kind of building from that into, you know, something that is the size of the scientific enterprise kind of generally in a lot of ways. Um, I'm curious as to how the students did. You mentioned that, you know, you, you were going to get some uh, comparable data over the years on, you know, what they did and how they learned from it. Um, how did this work out in practice? I'm, I'm going to guess pretty well. Hey, I know that Anna and Travis will have specific things to say, but my main takeaway is that what was really, really inspiring to me is that um, more than half of the students that uh, took this module as part of their courses had experience with plan identification or making a collection before. And even still, they showed significant learning gains after doing a course that included our module. So that to me is like, that's pretty cool. Like, even if you think you know how to do this, you're learning something new. Yeah, for sure. And we, we asked them, we asked, we surveyed the students as part of our assessment of what they were learning in this module. And we did um, a pre and post assessment at the very beginning of the class and then at the end. And some of the things uh, that stick out to me are that students were able by the end of the course, they uh, significantly more students, 71%, for example, said that you could um, answer, you could test hypotheses associated with species distributions by using herbarium specimens and their data, which um, before the class started, fewer than half of them said that you could do that. And so I think that's something that shows that they were um, gaining that uh, through the course itself. Um, and we had, we also, in addition to the collection, we had specific um, class exercises, uh, basically like data modules that we were also using and asking them questions uh, through those years that we were working on this. And so that, I think that was another thing. Like it, it fundamentally changed the way I was teaching my course. And so it's always nice to see that um, we couldn't, we couldn't directly compare with courses that didn't have this done, right? It was the students who were under this new system, what they gained out of that new system from before they took the course. But I have just from my own experience, I know that, you know, students were making higher quality collections they had 
more and better data on their specimen labels. And our survey questions showed that they learned more about how specimens could be used. And so to me, that is a win-win-win. James, I think one of the strengths of this whole experience for me was the collaborative experience. I met some really awesome colleagues and we all kind of learned about the digitization process together. So we we're meeting because we all were running these regional collections where you're kind of in isolation. You're teaching a class where you're realizing, oh my gosh, I got to teach people how to collect plants. And I'm kind of concatenating that together from my own experience. And we broke down some walls to really, truly collaboratively discuss all the different elements. And so I've called on all the people in this group at times to talk about different aspects of working with digitized data. Um, I, I built my research collaborations out of some of the people in this group. And we have a couple of research papers that we've put out that were related not to collecting specimens in a classroom, but to sort of the impact of research and specimens coming from regional collections. And then I, so I had a sort of cohort that I could think about a lot of aspects of my professional life, whether it's my research, whether it's my teaching, some of it's even been service and we've served on committees together. And what it's built is a much more confidence in me as an educator. It's allowed me to make my classes more current and it's not a one-off. It's not like, oh, I develop, we developed this together and now we do the exact same thing every year because we continue to see each other. Travis is adding you know, barcodes to his label. Erica hears from me once every month or two with, oh my gosh, Erica, how do you deal with this? And I have these resources and it's sort of kind of amplified all these things. And I think that is also kind of part of the idea of thinking of the future workforce and thinking of these skills and collaboration and communication that are part of the way we do 21st century science. And not only did we introduce them to our students, because I tell them about all these people, and I tell them about our process and I'll give them quotes from different things that we may have argued about or, and in a good way, argued about or discussed. Um, so I tell them about this so they can see how important it is for scientists to think about things like open science, open data, communication, sharing, equity of resources, um, a global approach to science. These are things that kind of come up with this group that I can now with confidence bring to my students. And they're all pretty cool people. Oh, something that I like about what you're saying on is that, you know, I, I see us very much as our, our group was acting as a community of practice. And then both you, the two of you and our other collaborators had students or grad students who, you know, six or seven years after taking a course with this module are now active professionals in our community. And I don't know them personally, but I know we have this, this shared experience of this module. Um, and it really is a, a great kind of grounding reference point to, to, you know, I hope for the students who are now no longer students to enter the workforce with the same kind of confidence that they are speaking the same language as their colleagues. You know, and having this experience and working with this group um, taught me the value of that in a way that then we transition. You know, Travis was just talking about the Laos example and Laos and bird coevolution. So that led to some other modules that we developed that and some other collaborations that kind of leveraged some of the education stuff that I was doing. I know Travis has several other funded grants. I have one on biodiversity literacy that leveraged some of the skills that we learned here. Um, 
and so not only did this collaboration leverage what we already knew, but it opened some opportunities and those opportunities have gone into more about education and workforce training. Um, and Travis runs um, some programs for some gateway pathway programs for students. I think that that opened that up as well, which yeah, I think totally. is important to say or credit or reference. Yeah, I think starting on this collaborative path with this team um, definitely opened up major funding opportunities for, I, I have a biodiversity scholarship program that uh, is in its final years now, but it has funded well over a hundred students um, with scholarships to work on biodiversity projects and not all with plants, but in different taxonomic groups. And I think being able to secure that funding and impact those students' lives is a direct outcome of this collaboration because it, you know, my, my professional career and the science that we were doing here and education was moving me more and more in that direction. And one of the things I said it a thousand times on our group calls, but, you know, I said, we, I'm always impressed by our commitment given that it's an unfunded mandate. Like we decided to collaborate and we didn't have funding for this project. We, were, we did it. It's like having to carve it out. And one of the years, the year we were analyzing the date. So it was like setting it up was a, was a lot happening at once. Then we kind of had it set. We collected data for a few years. And then it was like, oh, it's like, I guess it's time to kind of like sort and analyze and score these student responses. That was a conference call a week for a year that we were committed to, that we did, and then also had to score hundreds of student responses <laughs> or thousands of responses from hundreds of students. And it was like, wow, we really are committed to this. And to see it finally being published, <laughs> I'm so proud of that. But I think our team, you know you've got a good team when you're willing to stick with it when you have all the other facets of professional life pulling at you and sometimes it's like well this you know this grant proposal is due or this final report is due and this had none of that right we just decided we were going to do it so we had to stay committed because we wanted to stay committed to it and we did so yay go team <laughs> the work that we did on this project is so meaningful to me because i think it's an in an intuition that we all have that while well, collections are a magical thing and they're a great educational resource, but in this project and through the analysis of the survey data we collected, we're actually able to put some evidence on that and really say, yeah, biodiversity collections give students something tangible to pin their concepts on. And here's here's a concrete example of how that worked. So that I think is, is worth all of the uh, hours a week conference calls for years on end. Did you ever think about how like Zoom ready we were for the pandemic because we have done this for so long <laughs> when everyone's like, oh, I'm just learning all these platforms. I'm like, Shh. <laughs> we've been doing this for years. <laughs> I think about how when you guys were starting to implement, I was like in the middle of nowhere, Poland, trying to like figure out what Skype was so that I could use it to talk to you. <laughs> I don't know what this is. <laughs> do and think of all that you know it did take a long time 
And there's so many changes that happen. Like Erica, you've moved from being a graduate student when this started, I think, to now you're employed by iDigBio as a data scientist. And, um, you know, you look at different ones of us that have gone through and now we're tenured or we may have moved institutions or we made like there's just been a lot of life happening in the background. But the cool part is at the base of it all was the specimens. And I think it also reconfirmed a lot of the research I did really got more embedded in it. It's like the more you learn these skills and techniques, the more you're like, well, I could ask this question or that question. So it really did kind of expand out in a lot of directions. Yeah. And I should just say that, you know, you're all of your, um, you know, enthusiasm and excitement is completely infectious. And this is, this has been really great to learn about. Um, I'm curious now what's next, um, you know, for this module or, you know, the collaboration, um, is this going to be rolled out into, you know, every bio classroom across the nation world or, you know, how soon, like how many, it's an open education resource. So anyone that wants to do that can. (laughs) Yes. And we would encourage all your listeners (laughs) to, to check out www.collectionseducation.org. Um, this is so cool because we have been presenting on this concept for, well, I mean, we started in 2014. We probably gave our first presentation at a regional conference in 2015. And so, you know, what is that? Six years we've been talking about this. And like Anna said, at certain conferences, we've been hosting workshops and some trainings. So people know about it a little. My hope is that this will be meaningful to folks in its bioscience published form and more people can take advantage of it. It's, it's also customizable. So this is one of the things that we, um, we provide all the resources. We have an instructor resources link on the website too, so they can get more information from it. Um, but it's like, it's really important for folks to, to recognize that this isn't, already designed to be one size fits all necessarily. It's that it's customizable to whatever your needs are. And so if it's not gonna work in your classroom setting, then that's fine. But you can also probably pull elements of it that are gonna work well. And some people are really looking for something just like this because you know we've talked to enough folks that say, yeah, I have that same problem. And so we hope that um, people can pick it up and use it and also uh, read our paper and say like, yeah, we, we see the, some of those learning gains and they're important. And then there's also the practical gains that we talked about just in terms of processing the specimens that also makes it worth it. So I'm interested in seeing some of the other steps that we can learn in data acumen and helping define some of the skill sets that our emerging workforce is going to need, whether they're the end data users of biodiversity data, um, or they're going to be future data scientists that are going to work with biodiversity data. So I've been working with biodiversity literacy in undergraduate education, and we have a website. Um, And we've also worked with quantitative undergraduate biology education synthesis. And we have a lot of open education resources, many of which I've developed or co-developed with other people in our group. Um, One of our co-authors, Deb Linton, is a science educator who's brought a lot to this project because this was her research area. Whereas we were talking about, oh, these are all these things you need in plant systematics. And she was our voice of reason that was always like, okay, yeah, but 
we got to test it and we have to assess it. And these are some things that we would have to do. So I learned a lot there that then translated into a real belief that we need to be open with data and open with our resources. And so what we did, we did with our own website, but we have also published that as with a DOI number as part of the Cubes Hub and have a lot more resources that have come since then, which, you know, Travis, I loved your example because we built one around that example, which is the louse bird example, but we have a lot of other ones there. And as we look at all these emerging issues coming out with equity and decolonization and uh, the concept of globalization of science and thinking on some of the scales we need to, to confront things like climate change or a global pandemic, the, the more we can share vetted resources that someone's actually implemented and that show learning outcomes. Um, I think we did that in our way with our website and now there's a lot more resources to do that. And that's definitely an important component of where I wanna go and continue to work with some of these great colleagues I already have. So it sounds like there's a lot more to look forward to in the future and be excited about. Um, and that sounds like a good note to leave the conversation on too. Thank you all very, very much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you, great to be here. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.